when you work backwards using an intentional process like service design that peels back the layers, all the noise that constitutes a service, and you delve beneath the shiny website and the pretty app, and you get into the systems, it shows how these things are tied together, lashed together, what purpose they serve, where the money goes, where the power exists, you know, who makes real decisions here. You get to see what really are the goals and what really is the purpose besides what is stated. Hi, and welcome to Greater Than. Here you'll listen to conversations with business leaders on how they build remarkable businesses, putting values to work for their organization and their customers. I'm Lauren Sinreich, a systems thinker and design strategist, principal of Whole Innovation and Design, and host of this podcast. As they say, the devil is in the details. And for me, I think that there are very few tools and methods that are as effective at building a clear strategy for the how of what you do as service design. So I'm really excited to chat with you, Marshall, about your experience with service design and how you got started and and where you think its its strengths and opportunities lie. Uh, Would you mind uh, just giving a quick intro about you and the roles you occupy? Sure. And, um, And thanks, First of all, for uh, for speaking with me about this um, and having me on your on your podcast, I really appreciate it. My name is Marshall Sitton. I'm the director of communications and service design for city community development and inclusive finance. Uh, those are the units that lead city, as in city group, city bank, lead cities work in financial inclusion and economic opportunity for low income and financially vulnerable people um, in the communities that we serve as a bank. I've been working in service design for, I guess, a little little over 10 years now, uh, communications for my entire career. Um, and I've been working at City now for about seven years. I also uh, started the New York City service design community uh, with a number of folks back in 2012. And I teach a graduate course on service design at the School of Visual Arts in their uh, MFA in interaction design. Service design has become much more commonly known as of late, but you started the Service Design Network in New York a number of years ago, and I think that you were kind of a pioneer for service design here in the States. Can you tell us a little bit how you got started? You know, I I have... I should clarify that you know it was a number of us who who worked together to do this back in in 2012 uh, with the service design network. So many people um, that it's uh, it's tough to name them all. The short version is basically I was a graduate student in the MBA program in international organizations at the University of Geneva um, back in uh, 2008 2009, and uh, my just as a complete lucky happenstance, a professor of mine who was a professor of risk management at University of Geneva was also the, he he was also the founder of the Swiss Institute of Service Science and had introduced me to a process of designing services that he called service design. And, you know, the, the, model for service design was already much more mature in Europe at that point. Um, it was based, it was steeped deeply in, in behavioral and social science, economics, um, and much less so than sort of what we're used to in the States, which a lot of it got its origin in you, you know, user experience design, interaction design, um, and, and digital technologies and sort of more touch point focused. Service design in the 
in, in Europe was much more focused on systems level change and behavioral science. Um, so my introduction to it in that sense was in the European school. Um, I did some uh, I did some academic research with him. I, 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 we still collaborate on a number of projects um, until I came back to the United States in, uh, in 2011, um, where I, I picked up where I left off, looked to try to find um, a community connect, to connect with and found a group of people here who were already sort of working on organizing around service design, um, people who had come up from various different digital disciplines and were looking to really get a better understanding of how to climb that strategic ladder and go from designing touch points, which they had been doing f for their entire careers, to working on systems or strategic level change for for how services are produced, delivered, and, and, and used. Um, we I met a number of them when we did the, uh, the service design jam, the global service jam um, in New York, and we started, we, we created a community here, which is now thousands strong. But back then, even just a few short years ago, there was a very little awareness of how service design differed from other forms of service re-engineering, things that were much more along the historic notions of um, scientific management and, you know, um, like Six Sigma or um, very data-driven and metrics-driven um, re-engineering and retooling of services that treated people like machines. And, you know, as I, as I had learned um, under uh, Emmanuel Franier, who's the, the professor I worked with, um, service design emerged from, as a, as a pushback to this idea that you can treat people both in terms of how services are delivered, but also in terms of how they're consumed as though they are linear, rational, mechanistic actors who can be prodded and pushed through certain types of changes in metrics or expectations or, you know, um, very basic types of incentives and drivers, and that you can um, engineer their responses and engineer progress and delivery of value in that sense. And, you you know, what's what we all know is that, that that's nonsense. You can't. And what's, what I learned about service design by using ethnomethodology and qualitative tools and even the tools of theater and theatrical reproduction, that you, that you can capture so many of the intangibles of what takes place when somebody uses a service and how it, and how it produces value for them in their life, how it helps them solve a problem. Using an intentional methodology improve the way that those things are delivered and see whether a service can actually be uh, redesigned with that, with the full participation of everybody who's involved and who has a stake in it to be able to actually improve the way that that service works. I, I love that. That's a really good uh, and comprehensive explanation. I love the point that you made about how in the States it's known more from a touch point focus and service design has been modified for that focus of, of you know, how do we orchestrate various touch points versus the systems level change and behavioral science uh, approach to it. I'm curious to see um, what are you seeing as far as like a comparative difference and how it's being rolled out, the different um, applications and, 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 and its ultimate impacts. Do you see a difference there? Well, they have, I mean, there's some differences in the sense that the, their origin story is going to be necessarily different, you know. The, um, I mean, service design, as I can, as, as I understand it, originated and grew out of the study of services marketing, and and under, try an attempt to understand how people perceive value. 
you know, whatever value may be. The the idea that a service is, um, in the words of Panthea Lee from uh, the reboot, it, it's a commitment to solving a problem. I really like that. It's a really elegant way of describing what a service does. And, you know, without having to get into the history, you know, go back to the Neolithic period and understand how, mm-hmm. you know, people organize themselves by tasks and what they could provide for one another. You know, services are really how we, is it's so much of the glue that holds society together. The, the, the ways in which we exchange value for one another uh, through services explains a lot about who we are and how we rely on one another. And, to look at it from that perspective is to understand the underlying systems that produce services. You know, the things that you need, you know, the things, these, these very complex interlocking parts and that to, and that the understanding that so many things that go wrong with services are because they were not designed with intent. You know, they were sort of allowed to happen, but the fixing them requires intent in that way. But when we look at how service design has evolved, you know, sort of as a second wave in the United States, a lot of it is linked to the shape of American capitalism. The the reason, one of the biggest reasons why, I, in my opinion, people got into service design from these other sciences, from these other uh, practices, is because t- designing touch points and designing digital interfaces and things like that is replicable. It's scalable. It allows um, it allows capital drivers to um, make much more much more money through industrialization of service, as opposed to say you know human based in person touch points, right? Where you know you go up to a desk or you pick up a phone and call somebody and talk to them, and they work you through work you through a problem or a bank teller or a you know a bank manager loan officer. You know, look at the difference between a community bank's loan officer sitting down with you to talk about your needs and how to how to match you up with the right small business loan product versus um, you know going online and getting you know going online and getting a mortgage through you know through an app. Um, you know, one is incredibly scalable and one absolutely isn't. You know, you can't mm. scale the expertise of a of a bank of a of a bank officer or loan officer. Um, they maintain relationships, they build trust, they understand the intangibles of a human being. An app doesn't, but you can have a thousand people looking up loans, uh, you know, in their pajamas, whereas, you know, a bank officer can only be there during business hours. And so a lot of those services were designed, you know, websites, apps, those types of things, because the, the drivers of those activities um they're they're built on scale and so then somebody can go and easily portfolio that a design firm could say look at the app we built we can build you one just like it whereas in service design for for human-based services or expertise-based services it's much more complicated it's it's very hard there's a there's a greater leap of faith required um and so people worked in those industries primarily because that's you know that's where new york san francisco a lot of the tech hotbeds that was their that was their core industries in terms of what we would think of as service design. And after a while, many of the people working in those fields wanted something more. They wanted to do different kinds of work than just simply skinning another app. Um, and so I think that that's kind of how the interest built, developed into an, an area of practice in the United States versus what was really a very Keynesian and you know, government-led 
incubation of the service design industry in say the United Kingdom or Germany, where a lot of the service design industry is much more mature and actually much more deeply embedded in government and society and understanding that these things are how you should design services, that it was given this initial boost and then spread out into the private sector as the value became much more tangible. Here, it's almost working in reverse. That's fascinating. And I think you there's, you know, I've picked up a few things in there that I could just go in a million directions with. But I think two things that I, you know, that I think I really want to highlight what I heard from what you were saying in there is that one is the the intent behind and the which in the way that you design or deliver a service. Um, and then also the complexity is that that, you know, the world is getting um, a lot more complicated. There's a lot more elements that are far more ranging than we can account for sometimes. And uh, that we need methodologies and tools to really account for those things so that we can be as intentional as possible. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that even the most simple service or even a component of a service, you know, if, if supposing there's a, you have something, you have, you have, a, you have a fairly basic service, but you, you there's obstacles that you want to clear. You know, either because there was a change or because there's a problem, you know, and you want to use service design to apply to a problem, even something very simple. My first academic paper with uh, uh, Emmanuel Fagnier um, was focused on a... Um, um, a ski resort town's information desk in a, a little village in Switzerland. And, you know, it, it, it's the simplest thing. You know, you, anybody who's ever gone skiing and goes in and sees an information desk, you've seen a million of them. Um, but there was a lot of frustration around um, the, the, the flow, people coming in, um, not getting the information they wanted, the staff feeling overwhelmed. And, you know, you, you look and you go, okay, well, what's the big deal? Like, you know, how, how hard could this be? Um, but when you use, you know, it was a way of testing, um, test driving a methodology that we, that, that was, that we developed that involved um, ethnomethodology and theater-based reenactment. And as it turns out, when, when, you know, when, when you use a real theater director, not necessarily, not like corporate style role-playing, you know, um, but actually, you know, a director who understands things like space, timing, tone, all the things that is, is, is uh, Eve Pongli, the, the, the director that we worked with, would say is making the invisible visible. Um, you see that there's enormous complexity in even the most basic services. And so the, the ability to tangibilize those things and put them in front of you in a way that allows you to examine and interrogate them and see how can we clear obstacles? Where are people missing one another in this process? Um, yes, it does provide clarity in many instances, but looking to service design to provide clarity is probably the wrong approach because you end up with hmm. so many other questions and maybe so many other sub-threads that things that could could take you in a couple of different directions that take you maybe off of what you thought the problem really was, which is another benefit of service design is it's non-linearity as a process, um, you know, but also illuminates other things that could bring you much closer to a better resolution, you know, especially since you're incorporating at every phase all of the stakeholders of a particular service in its in the process of its very design. 
And I think it speaks uh, to the applicability of it in so many different areas. You know, for example, you mentioned your your professor came from a risk management uh, discipline, and uh, and you guys were also working on projects in the ski slopes, and um, uh, and so I, I think that's <laughs> it is it is a, a great benefit of of service design of of being able to get down to the heart of a problem. It distills it pretty clearly for you, but I think that it is true. It is a, it is also um, one of those things you have to accept and be prepared for and have an organization that be working with an organization that's open to con, uh, open to reexamining the problem that you thought you were solving in the first place, which uh, can be a bit of a can of a wor- can of worms themselves. <laughs> oh yeah. I think it'd be great to hear a little bit more about your role at city is in community development and communications. And I think if I remember correctly, service design wasn't originally part of that, uh, that role. Um, and I know that you have over time incorporated it and made it, made it become much more central part of the way that you engage in this role and the services that you roll out. Can you talk a little bit about that? How you, how, uh, you built, started to build in service design into this, this capacity and this team at the bank? Well, I'll say one part of it is, I think inherent in how we operate as a community development unit within within a giant bank. And the second part of it is entirely luck. In, in terms of how we're structured, the work that we do, um, you know, as I said earlier, our, our work is is centered on financial inclusion. And so that could be helping people get access to, fi- to mainstream financial services, whether they be cities or not. Um, you know, helping people raise their credit score, helping people build financial resiliency uh, so that they can weather shocks. I mean, we're seeing the importance of that uh, right now, obviously. And, you know, as, as we know, m- almost half of all households in the United States lack the, the cash or liquid liquid assets on hand to deal with even a couple of weeks of, uh, of a shock to income, you know, and so in the face of this lack of financial resiliency, whatever its origins may be, um, you know, things like financial counseling and coaching, things like access to um, tax credits, like the earned income tax credit or child tax credit, um, things like access to low cost, safe, affordable financial products and services. You know, those are, those are sort of the, the center of our work. And we do that through partnerships, partnerships with municipal governments, uh, leading nonprofit organizations, uh, consumer and civil rights advocates. They are the ground level experts who understand the shape of need and the shape of, of challenges facing vulnerable communities. Um, and we provide Lots of different kinds of support. Sometimes it's funding. Sometimes it's expertise. Uh, sometimes these programs are co-created. And sometimes it's we're helping. We're providing necessary financial support to programs that um, you know that are early stage catalytic programs that, for which there's no budget yet. No one's working with them to take the leap on you know experimenting with something that uh, is yet untested. And that's kind of the uh, space that we operate in. Um, just a quick example. Um, you know, many several years ago, we did a program. Uh, we we launched a program with the the mayors of uh, Los Angeles, New York, and Chicago called Cities for Citizenship. That was predicated on the idea that um, enabling people to attain the benefits, both economic benefits and social benefits of citizenship, leads to 
enormously positive outcomes, both for those individuals, but their families and the communities around them. Um, and that oftentimes, some of the one of the barriers that people who are looking to naturalize face who are eligible uh, is um, that they can't afford the filing fee uh, to naturalize, which is a signal, obviously, that there are several other types of financial fragility there. And so what we do is we work with them, uh, with, with nonprofits to provoke, to sort of link up naturalization services with, you know, so free naturalization services with financial counseling and coaching that can help shore up both ends of that spectrum. And we were, we, we funded that when it was in its very early stage. And now it's, I think almost 90 cities and counties around the country. And so that's, that's exactly how we want to try to do that work. Start in an early phase and get it to a point where it can scale and replicate. That's a really great example. Yeah, it's, it's such a great program. I, I love it so much. And, you know, it's, it's a shame that that landscape has gotten even more challenging. You know, I mean, especially when we see how, I mean, just not even to get sidetracked, but when we see how vitally important immigrants are to the cornerstone of the economy, you know, small business, startups, um, you know, all different types of expertise, just the mosaic of cultural and, and other types of richness that, that immigrants bring to cities. I mean, I'm, you know, we're, we're all, you know, I'm married to an immigrant, you know, I, my, I'm a third or fourth generation American at this point, but, you know, we all come from somewhere else. And the ability to smooth that road, but also provide the types of counseling and coaching support, which, you know, all of these things are sub-services within this kind of a larger umbrella, um, is just one example of the type of programs we support. And, you know, so that was, that's the kind of work that we do. And you're right, when I first started, um, I was kind of just the nutty <laughs> uncle who everyone knew was involved in this thing called service design, but, you know, there wasn't really an opportunity or place for it yet. And I certainly made the, you know, the mistake of the overeager new guy and like tried to talk about it, talk it up really early. And like, you know, everybody nodded and said, yeah, that sounds fine. And just kind of like, you know, went back to what they were doing. And then an opportunity came up and that's where the, the where the luck comes in was that, you know, there was an opportunity to, pursue what we an innovation innovation grant program within our unit where some of these really you know cutting edge uh, but again totally untested ideas could could potentially receive some funding and you know a, a friend and collaborator of mine within New York City government named Dave Seliger and I sort of hatched a plan of you know how do we how do we legitimize service design in government where, especially when we're talking about services that meet the needs of low-income New Yorkers, you know, in a way that isn't, as, as some people might, as, that I work with might call a mm. career-limiting move, right? You, you, you know, you, you, have to, you have to try to find a way of legitimizing the idea in a space that is much safer. And to, again, the, the luck of it was that my boss, um, guy named Baba Nibale, who's our uh, global head of community development and inclusive finance, uh, you know, real visionary in the, in the field, um, who is, who is uh, retiring um, this year, um, put his faith in the idea, put, he backed it, he approved us for an innovation grant at the maximum level for, you know, for the a project that we did with the city of New York. And he really, he got it. And, you know, I think that there's no, 
you know, I'll probably end up saying this a lot during our conversation, but there's no replacement for that kind of luck. Someone putting their faith in an idea and saying, you know, we're putting money behind it, which means let's, we're committed, let's make it work. And, you know, we had a similar commitment from the New York City government side where uh, the then commissioner of what was then called the Department of Consumer Affairs, uh, Julie Menon, had a mandate to radically increase the number of people who were using free tax preparation services um, provided through the city of New York and a network of nonprofit partners so that people can, low-income New Yorkers could claim the earned income tax credit. Now, I'm whether or not your your listeners are you know are familiar with the EITC as it's called, um, it's a tax credit that provides an average of twenty five hundred dollars, but in many cases much more than that to low income workers. It's one of the um, mo- they call they, they, it, it's it's considered to be one of the most successful anti poverty programs in the country. It's you know obviously miserably named the, you know, uh, who, when anybody talks about the earned income tax credit, you can talk about a social benefit named after the tax code. It's absurd, but, you know, and it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but it is life-saving in many cases. And the people who, who use it year on year, they are well aware of its benefits. They plan for it. They file early. Um, it can help people buy clothing, fix a car, you know, pay down and pay down debt. You know, in a, in a situation where we don't provide nearly, I mean, just nearly, and we're seeing, again, we're seeing that now amid the COVID crisis, that this, the social safety net and the floor, you know, uh, you, you don't need a Bernie Sanders to articulately lay out for you the diseased nature of our social support systems in this country. But $2,500 for someone making 30 grand a year, 20 grand a year um, is a yeah. tremendous one-time cash infusion. And the problem was that of the, all these thousands of people who were claiming it in the city of New York, um, only about three percent were using the free tax filing system. The most most everybody else was paying anywhere from one hundred and fifty dollars to even up to five hundred dollars um, to pay uh, to tax preparers, who some of them were extremely predatory and engaged in some really uh, awful um, and exploitative business practices. And so the idea was, well, okay, let's help them get the most of their, their, their tax credit back. They earned it. And so this was the nature of the first project, which became an initiative known as Designing for Financial Empowerment. And we brought in the Parsons School of Design's DESIS Lab, um, which is run by uh, Lara Pennon and Eduardo Stasowski at the, in the Parsons DESIS Lab, who are just stunningly amazing people and talented designers and leaders in this field um, to as the design partner. And we worked with the Food Bank for New York City, which was the largest provider of these free tax preparation services, um, and the city of New York on this joint initiative to use service design in an intentional way to answer the question of why are so many people, low-income New Yorkers, paying for a service that they could get for free? And it was a question that was tailor-made yeah. for service design and so that that kicked it off you know the, the the project the first project was wildly successful you could you could still we documented the entire project so your listeners can go to dfe.nyc that's designing for financial empowerment so dfe.nyc and check out what what we did um but before the first project was done the city of new york came back and said hey can we do two more um 
and we funded two more, another one focused on immigration services, naturalization services, and the last one on financial counseling and coaching, um, which then led to us funding the uh, creation and launch of the New York City Service Design Studio, which was based in the mayor's office um, for economic opportunity in New York City and was the first of its kind, a first service design studio that was specific with a specific mandate to make services for low income residents as accessible and effective as possible. Um, and so that's, that kind of brings us to today. I, I, you know, I still do a lot of different um, one-off projects and serve related to service design, We're working on a couple of other bigger initiatives um, with the team, but those are sort of the signature projects. And that's how we got started doing this work in, in, in at city. <laughs> it's pretty remarkable story to go from an innovation grant to ultimately developing a service design, a design service studio for the city, right? That's just a remarkable success story. That example that you gave of how, you know, initially the program was um, falling short, I think that's a really good in- example of, of intent and the value that service design provides around intent. And, you know, the, 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 the program clearly initially had the intent of supporting people, but there's a lot of steps along the way where that intent can get deprioritized or lost. It gets, gets designed out because of whatever other reasons might be, you know, feasibility, assumed feasibility or cost or things like that. So I'm curious whether it's in the still staying on this project as an example or in another project talking a little bit more about you know how it is that service design is really good at maintaining the intent and being true to it so that those services can really achieve their fundamental goals um, that they had originally set out to do and not get diluted in the process that so many so many projects do get diluted by that's such a it's such a great question um because exactly because of how difficult it is to answer. <laughs> I know, it's a huge one. <laughs> <Yeah. Yeah. laughs> it's such a, I'm sorry, it's such a dumb guy stalling tactic we to be like, great question. We can put on like, like music, like, dude, dude, thinking, dude. Oh, God. <laughs> Give you time to think. <laughs> <laughs> I can vamp for a minute while I think about it, yeah. So the, I think that there are a couple of good counterbalancing examples that sort of speak to both part, both sides of your question here, because like the one in our project, the first designing for financial empowerment project for free, for free tax prep services is a good example of a service, you know, a, a service that works, but either lost its way or um, wasn't necessarily fully designed with intent, you know, or, you know, and so, you know, free tax prep services are provided by amazing dedicated incredible people and you know who work for organizations that understand how much value this brings to the communities that depend upon them you know like there's um on the on the dfe website there is a there's both a sort of short trailer for the initiative and a longer documentary film that that goes through what we did and they're in it there's there are interviews with you know, that are based on the discovery process, interviews with frontline tax preparers. These are people who got certified by the IRS and who volunteer to do people's taxes, um, low-income people's taxes during the craziest times of the year in hot, crowded, you know, borrowed spaces that do just amazing work and provide working 
lower income working people with a with a huge cash infusion and so like you look you work backwards from the intent of that service by what it does right and and it provides this value it works the people who get uh, I think it was a GAO study, uh, Government Accountability Office study that showed that free tax prep services are, on, on, are by and large more accurate, re- produce more accurate returns and fewer audits, um, have fewer problems with them than their paid tax preparer uh, counterparts. You know, they don't play games and there is a clear chain of accountability that results in good results for the people who use those services. So for us the service design challenge was wasn't so much you know a a question of do you know are they meeting their stated intent are they following through on their purpose is this you know are they truly delivering the value that they um that they purport to or they, they seek to but rather why is their value not tangible you know my my professor uh my mentor franier his golden rules for for what constitutes a good service is that a service only acquires value when a client can perceive its mm. benefits. I love that. And, you know, it, it's a, yeah, it's, 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 it's an elegant way of putting it, but it is also a hundred percent true statement. You know, as I'm fond of telling my students, you know, a, a hair salon or a barbershop no longer holds value for me at any price. Right. There's no, there's no, there's no, there's no combination of features. There's no, bargain there's no deal that will make a uh, a barbershop worth my while because i don't need haircuts anymore so for me that the value of that is not tangible so why is something why is a free service that provides high quality professional tax filing not something that these people who are already so cash strapped willing to engage well you know when we when we got beneath the surface it it looks like that even the idea of free to some means shabby or cheap means that it's probably of lower quality than a place that has like, you know, mahogany desks and people who wear ties that, you know, the, the marketing and things like that make a difference. And it also turns out that when you, um, that when you name a service after its literal definition, which is uh, it's volunteer income tax assistance or VITA, that someone may not, someone may think that that is in, you know, that that's not free tax prep or something that applies to them. Uh, it sounds like an energy drink. It doesn't sound like something that people are going to go and do the way you go to, you know, one of the big tax preparers that tells you we're going to do your taxes. This is tax prep. You know, that the, that the very name of it may completely pass people by. And so in that case, the intentional approach deconstructs the service and says, what are the areas that are providing frustration for people? How is it that we're missing them? You know, or if we're not missing them, what is it, what is it about it that's a turnoff that, that was a, resulted in a, a bad experience? You know, how, how, what are their competitors doing? What is the, what is the land, what is the market in, in terms of tax prep? How are people even acquiring knowledge of this? Maybe they don't even hear about it. And so there were so many things, even like the most, to, to give you an idea of the fixes, you know, the, 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 the project produced a kit of 60 testable, actionable prototypes um, that could have been implemented at every phase of the service journey from pre-awareness to, uh, to post-engagement. And, you know, we had, we made some decisions at the, after, after the project was over on which, you know, which prototypes we should implement based on priority and and you know how easy they were to implement 
you know, again, again, versus their priority, you know, and one of the first things we did was an integrated modular rebranding from Vita sites, you know, that were heterogeneous branding and advertising. Every single organization had their own way of doing it. It was called Vita. Um, you know, it was, it, it had, it, everything looked like a hodgepodge of things that you just sort of miss when you looked at their ads to, and, and was, we changed that to NYC free tax prep. <laughs> ah. You know, like, like <laughs> Glorioski, we have, we have, we have, it turns out that's actually very easy to understand. And you create a simple, clear, professional looking brand that's unified and allows room for the nonprofit partners to sub brand it as they please, but get, but can build a reputation year on year so that people see it, they recognize it. If you ride the New York City subway for the last two or three years, you will have seen NYC free tax prep ads. And, you know, some of them are a little on the goofy side, um, you know, some of them, but they are all eye-catching and they all look and feel like a professional service being advertised, you know, and they clearly deliver the information and work to tangibilize the value of that service in a way that the previous ads yeah. did not do, you know, and that's just the most basic type of thing. But when you compare, so you set that aside, right? That's free tax prep. It was, it was a service that worked, it delivered value, but there were some obstacles to perception of value for the people who were going to use it. But then you contrast that with other services that um, you, they have a stated goal, a stated purpose. There may maybe they're the company uh, organization that they that they are, that produces them has a, a certain statement of vision or purpose. And when you deconstruct them using the process of service design you find out that in fact uh it's actually more complicated than that and that maybe they they aren't as interest that their interests do not overlap in the, with the interests of their intended consumer in the ways that they think it does or that like as you indicated in your question that maybe they came it used to and they came across some other problem. Like look at look at some of the 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 way that so many of the freemium services went it went or or totally free service online services went over time, particularly those backed by venture capital, where they people they, they grew a huge user base overnight because the service may have been free or it had tons of certain kinds of features and flexibility, and at some point that stopped, or and either maybe ads started appearing, or um, certain features got paywalled or it became uh, fee for service immediately, you know, mm -hmm. or over, overnight, you know, and you said, well, how'd that happen? Well, okay. The, you know, maybe the cash well dried up and now they have to become profitable and some structural or systems level issue or, or part of that landscape changed for them. And now it changed the way that they deliver value. You know, or they had a different set of priorities. Either way, if their goals, desires, values, aims, incentives are not in alignment with those of the customer and the client, th there will be some of these obstacles that look like they don't make much sense to the people who are using the service or in some cases who are producing it. And the service design process will reveal those. And in many cases, those problems cannot be designed mm -hmm. out. I think that's a really amazing example or uh, illustration of of the real value that service design offers, whether it's from a you know the perspective of 
of the systems level change in behavioral science to being more efficient and rolling something out and seeing finding opportunities. But I think nowadays we're seeing uh, two trends that are really important. Is one is the the information empowered customer. I think is what what Forrester calls calls you know digitally empowered consumers who have information at their fingertips. Uh, millennials and other younger generations that have are digital natives are so familiar with all of the different tactics for marketing and advertising and are very uh, sensitive to those tactics. And so anybody who does not feel that they are consistent in the value that they offer and the values that they claim to be delivering uh, via uh, is it's, you know, it's a really delicate area because uh, if you're not coming across as authentic, not just in your messaging and branding and product, but in the way that you deliver that service, we're seeing a lot of backlash and, uh, consequences for companies that are inconsistent in in messaging versus delivery. And I think also the other trend that we're seeing is not just the informed customer, and perhaps because uh, because of this other trend, people are much more values driven. And so they're driven to be more informed about where brands are coming from, how they're delivering things. And so those two things together, I think, make service design a really important methodology and approach, uh, particularly for today and in the coming complexity of of how do you balance uh, human interaction with machine efficiency and things like that? How do you maintain that quality of interaction and delivering consistently on values uh, as we get more complex in service uh, supply chains and uh, and technologies, I mean that's, that's a tremendous point. I mean the 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 idea. <clears throat> what I tell what I tell my students is that for almost every business that starts off as an expertise based business, you know where it's you know you have people who have tacit knowledge, you know. Um, provide, you know, providing clients with their expertise in exchange for money or whatever, um, that the, on a long enough timeline, those businesses look for ways to industrialize, you know, to, 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 to automate certain processes or automate entirely. Um, you want to be able to make money when you're sleeping. You want to be able to scale rapidly. You want to be able, you, you want to be a billionaire. And the, the problem with that pressure is that you, I have not seen any evidence that you that that can be done without a cost to the to the value provided to the consumer. Forget forget for a moment the 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 human cost in terms of what it does to labor and the labor force, right? Like that's I mean that's an entirely separate uh, conversation uh, about a side effect of automation, which is incredibly tragic and um, and and frankly monstrous yeah. in many respects. And, you know, would, where you're either forcing people to become and work more like machines or you re- replace human beings outright with machines um, to, achieve, to attain efficiencies, which only really serve to transfer wealth I'd just like to interject upwards. here. I mean, the potential there is to identify in the idealistic sense as the conversation goes is recognizing what machines are good at and ident- and separating that from what humans are good at to mean to make sure that we're promoting those jobs and continuing to design those in and be more intentional but that's another conversation so <laughs> absolutely and and we ju- I just wrote a paper with uh, with Franier on that very subject that literally that. that exact subject which is the how that's happening within organizations and how, frankly, unprepared most organizations that are racing ahead towards automation um, and um, 
and whatever approximation of AI, AI that companies feel comfortable calling AI um, is going to, what changes that's going to bring um, and how unprepared they are for the cascading effects that will have on the labor force. And yeah, and, and so you're absolutely right. There are there are pieces of jobs, and in some cases, entire jobs that are industrializable that 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 would benefit from from automation that don't necessarily benefit from human expertise. The you know that is a real key indicator of an organization's values is how they approach that transition, um, what their desires really are in that sense. Um, and what they look to do and how they do it, um, and whether or not they care about the effects of that on both the labor force and the customer. You know, there's, um, you know, for example, I was just talking about this with my wife, that there is, uh, you know, a large retailer, online retailer that most, I think, people at this point are um, deeply um, engaged with on many levels um, that you know, provides goods and services to just about everybody in the United States. And, you know, this particular online retailer makes it very difficult to reach a human being to resolve a, to resolve a problem that they have lots of automated processes for it. But let's face it, when you rely on one single source for most of your goods, a larger and larger percentage of those of problems that may happen with those require the intervention of a human being. And when you when you work backwards from that touch point to see how difficult it is to actually get that engagement that you need to resolve that problem, um, you see what it's truly designed for. It's designed to be hidden. And, you know, those and other things that I think in the world of UX are referred to as dark patterns, um, you know, are a, a clear reflection that service design can can unearth if you know and say well look you know you say you you care about this element you, you say you care about a happy customer but you know if it takes a customer you know a tech savvy customer who sort of knows where to look for these things and has the time to invest in solving this problem you know a substantial amount of their of, of a, a, you know maybe a, maybe half an hour, maybe 45 minutes to find, locate, and engage a human being to, to solve a problem, How you can't really say you really care that much about them being happy as much as you care about trying to solve most of the problems that some of the people have fairly cheaply and quickly for you. And then the rest of them, it's fine if they take a little extra time of their lives to, to, to find out how to, how to talk to somebody that can fix a problem that costs them money. I think that's a really amazing uh, example. Uh, I feel like I could just go forever talking about this, but um, to start wrapping up, uh, is there anything else, you know, I, I feel like on that last point, I kind of took you off on a tangent about the automated, um, the automating, the the roles, the human, what the human does versus. <laughs> I feel like I went off on a tangent. I don't know if you took me there. Okay. I'm really sure. I, I'm it was a mutual tangent. So I just want to make sure that we didn't leave anything off that you had in mind that you wanted to, uh, <laughs> to express there. <laughs> well, I, th I think, you know, I, I I think that a lot of where this, a lot of where you want to take this conversation, I think, is in the idea of, and correct, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that the the idea that an organization can express 
what they think their purpose and value. I mean, I mean the word purpose has been mm. beaten. It's becoming like innovation. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yet another word that makes you just think that human language is a mistake. Actually. Yeah, it's like, oh, <laughs> I can't just say, like, ugh. <laughs> and, and so the, you know, the, the, so, you know, are you aware of, you know, the yeah. business roundtable is? You know, it's gathering of CEOs mm-hmm. CEOs to you know our the corporate overlords. You know, decided that they were going to change recently their definition of the purpose of the company from the sort of you know the psychopathic but very honest and mask off kind of you know shareholder value is the dominant measure of the value mm-hmm. of the company, right? Um, you know, sure, it's you know it's an absolutely reptilian notion. Um, you know, bloodless and cruel, um, but it is in many ways very honest. And, you know, um, and it's, you know, and as awful as it is, and as much as we can see the the fruits of that shitty tree, the, you know, it's it's an honest expression of what their view is of what the, the purpose of the corporation is. They recently yeah. changed that definition to be, I mean, not just shareholders, mm-hmm. but stakeholders. Right, which is a sort of head fake to the idea Again, that's, that maybe it's not all about What's the intent money. behind it? There's, it's subject to interpretation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is is right? Is yeah. I mean, is right? Is the intent of it just to to get people to shut up about you know how awful uh, life is under late capitalism in this respect, or is it to say, or is it a real sort of statement of? A direction setting do we you know we 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 pledge that we want this right. to be true and the problem with that is is that is is i think at the heart of your thesis here which is that when you work backwards using an intentional process like service design that peels back the layers of what of of all the noise that constitutes a service and you know you you delve beneath the shiny website and the pretty app and you get into the systems and you, it shows how these things are tied together, lashed together, what the, what purpose they serve, where the money goes, where the power exists, you know, who makes real decisions here um, and who or what part of an organization has veto power over how something actually functions and who it serves. Um, you get to see what, what really are the goals and what really is the purpose besides what mm-hmm. is stated. You know, when you look at beyond what something says and instead you look at what it does, that's the thing I think that tells you what a val- what the values of an organization really are or even just of an individual service really are insofar as those things can have values. Service design is very good at that because um, yes, it has some of the standard sort of tools of visualizing the flow and des- and and design and and ma- machinery of a service you know the cogs and bolts and the people and the things but also it has a way of also illustrating things like it like in a way like throwing crumbled leaves up into the air to see which way the wind is blowing it, it allows you to you know it allows you to see these things that are normally invisible that are forces that affect it and you know values insofar as that's a useful word to apply to business or services um, are, I think they take shape in the ways in which we can see what is truly served by how something is built. And whether that was by accident, whether it just kind of came together that way, or whether it was built that way over time through 
multiple iterations and circumstances and, and exogenous factors that forced something and hammered it into a certain shape. Um, design can, can reveal that. Now, whether or not it can go any further than, than that, you know, and if an organization can say, hey, you know, um, this is not who we thought we were. This is not who we want to be. The way that the service currently runs is, you know, it's it's possibly exploitative or immiserating or just broken um, and that we don't want it to be that way. Then, okay, then the next step is we co-design, we prototype, we fix it. And then we, we, iter we, we continue to iteratively fix it until it resembles more of what we think our values are. Or it lives just as an, an analysis on a PowerPoint deck on someone's hard drive and never sees the light of day and never does anything more than just simply get someone fired or marginalized <laughs> within an organization. Well, let's not leave on that note that it's just going to get you fired. But I mean, I think there are there, those are two of the extreme <laughs> opposite ends of the spectrum. Or, you know, I think there's also another option of recognizing that you're, what you're delivering is not in line with, you, with what you say you're delivering and you can just update that you can update your messaging around it so that you can at least be more transparent and honest about where you're really coming from. And, uh, you know, I think I, you know, when it comes to values, people have specific values. Um, and I would love to see everything being in line with mine, but not everybody has the same values that I do. And if your audience is clear about what you're offering and why you're offering it and are in line with it, then at least the least you can do um, to engage your, use this to engage your audience is to be communicate that more clearly right so in an ideal world you you can you have the budget and the political buy-in to make those changes according to what you found through this process but um on the other end of it at least you can be a little bit more specific to the people you're speaking to totally true yeah i you know it's fine i didn't even consider that but yeah we're we're in, i feel like we're in a kind of like a post-shame phase of our society where like if you could if you even if you're doing something monstrous there's an audience there, i'm not advocating for that, for that they, they but would, yes you know what <laughs> but that's not definitely not what i'm advocating for what i'm saying is that like you know you think you're advocating for one set of stories when uh, it's really not that far off but you'll really resonate with another demographic more and uh, you can leave it up to to just yeah. that transparency and authenticity to see if that offering is really um, in demand and of value, right? Um, and I think totally. I think uh, doing this work, when, if you're struggling and finding you're not connecting to the customers, can really unearth absolutely. Uh, but to to close, uh, I think it'd be great to just give some direction for people that are interested in exploring this and thinking about how to start incorporating it in their organizations, because clearly it's not just in the world of a user interface and UX design. It can be incorporated in communications or in HR or anywhere. Uh, so curious where you would you would direct people to uh, to get started. Sure. I mean, well, the, the service design network, um, uh, which I believe is servicedesignnetwork.org, um, has a tremendous number of resources, especially for beginning designers. Um, if you are if you have if you're somebody who is just getting started and you want a really accessible and um, fascinating and beautifully designed and well written uh, introduction to service design that tells you what it is why it's good how it's done and gets you at least in a place where you know what kinds of questions you want to ask less next rather I cannot recommend more highly. Uh, the Introduction to Service Design book by Lara Pennin called uh, Introduction to Service Design, Designing the Invisible, which I, a title I still am 
totally in love with. The book is great. It's the, it's what I use as a textbook for, um, uh, for my class. Also, uh, read the work of Lucy Kimball. Um, there's so many great texts out there and so many good writers on this. Um, but you really couldn't ask for a better way to get started than Lyra Pennon's book. Um, in terms of how, in terms of any advice I would give to somebody who is, uh, trying to find a way of integrating this into their work, a start super small, find something, even if you have, you feel like you have an, an opportunity, um, to, to use service design on an existing challenge where you work, no matter what the discipline or area or type of challenge, very often a, a, something that trips up early early stage designers is uh, scope. And so trying to grasp something that is um, a small, tangible, approachable problem gives you much more flexibility. But the two things that I think the two conditions in which service design can thrive in an organization that hasn't used it before are a time of change, you know, where you know something mm. new is happening, something is changing. You know, you know, uh, there there's some kind of either some some crisis of change, um, and also when you can get the buy-in of senior leadership. Mm. The latter is much harder to get, but getting that mandate means that you could potentially have resources decked against the problem. You could get you 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 get the the mandate of the act of the boss themselves pin the um, pin expectations on folks and demand accountability, and so it doesn't look like a pet project by the one person who cares about it, but rather it is an it is an approach that does not guarantee results, but does guarantee a certain type of cultural change and approach to a problem that might be different than what than this sort of classic way of dealing with problems, which is to outsource decision-making uh, to charts, data, and PowerPoints. Um, you know, it, 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 ha it, have, it has, and, and setting expectations accordingly, making sure that you're not promising magic. Those are the, those are the only kinds of advice I would give to somebody who is trying to strike out on this on their own. Um, you know, again, I was, I was very, very lucky that I had the faith of my boss in this, uh, that really helped push things forward and, and make it look important enough to get the kind of momentum it needed to become important enough to folks. I think those are really great suggestions, the books, uh, the websites, and also just that really practical, tangible advice way to wrap up. So thank you, Marshall, so much for this conversation. I had a really good time um, just exploring this and talking about how great service design is with you. Lauren, thanks so much for inviting me to do this. It's really fun. Thanks for listening to Greater Than. Show notes are available on the podcast page on our website, wearewhole.co. That's we are W-H-O-L-E dot co. If you enjoy this conversation, leave a review where you stream your podcast and share it with others who might like it too.